0: Hello there everyone, this is your friendly neighborhood reminder from the voice in your pocket, Sarah Peck, that the Wise Women's Council, our year-long program for women business leaders who are navigating parenting and career and entrepreneurship, we are starting in March, that means this is the last week for applications. So, if you were thinking about applying to the Wise Women's Council, or you have no idea what the Wise Women's Council is, but now you are intrigued and you think, oh no, I should go check this out, well first, don't panic, just take a look and see if it's right for you. But if you have been planning to join the Wise Women's Council, if you wanted to apply, we have... An extraordinary, and I don't use that word lightly, an extraordinary class of women joining this year. We have more women joining than last year. We have alumni coming back. The group that's gathering is so incredible, and I would love to invite you to come be a part. If you want to be around other women and entrepreneurs and other parents who are navigating all of this in the middle of a pandemic, then come check us out, the Wise Women's Council, StartupParent.com slash WWC or go to our website, look for the Wise Women's Council in the navigation menu, and make sure you apply because we start in just a couple of weeks. Hi, everyone, welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives about what it looks like to raise kids and also build companies. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. The advice that you get around pregnancy and food especially is really intense suddenly there's so many things that you have to do and there's so much that you need to pay attention to and if the internet has its way with you so much that we're all doing wrong well the good news is that we have lily nichols she's a prenatal nutritionist a registered dietitian and the best-selling author of real food for pregnancy and real food for gestational diabetes she's here to talk to us about what matters when it comes to food and how to eat as healthy as possible for you and your kiddo In this episode, she's going to go over how backwards most prenatal nutrition advice really is. For example, did you know that most dietary recommendations for females are just guesses based on male bodies? Yeah, that's not going to cut it. She dug through 934 research studies to find out what really matters to your metabolism, to your health, and to your growing baby. Dig in, eat real food, and enjoy this episode with Lily Nichols. This one was originally published in 2018, that's when we first had her on the show, but we are rebroadcasting it because it's been one of our best ever episodes, downloaded more than almost any other episode, so I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Splendid Spoon. They are a meal delivery service that has been really wonderful during my postpartum time after baby number two. As you know, one of the things that can be really hard for new moms is finding enough high quality, good, nutritious, nutrient-dense foods to eat when you're super hungry and you have a new baby in your household. Seriously, for me, I put the baby down, I run to the kitchen, I open my fridge, and then I see that everything I bought has to be prepared. And I just, I don't even have time to chop things up, let alone like make it to the bathroom, take a shower, whatever all the things are that have to be done. So then I end up opening my cabinet, and on a good day, I'm snacking on seaweed snacks and some salted nuts. But honestly, I grab anything, and then it turns out I've eaten like five bags of potato chips that day and nothing else. That's why I was really happy when Splendid Spoon reached out about being a referral partner. They make soups and smoothies that are ready to eat, nutrient dense, and plant based. Startup Pregnant listeners get $50 off their first delivery when you use the link splendid.to slash startup pregnant. That's splendid.to slash startup pregnant. I will put the link in the show notes so that you can get $50 off of your first week of delivery. Today we get to talk all about food. Last fall, I did the Whole30, and I was fascinated by the results. Maybe you don't know this about me, but I have lived on a vegan farm. I've taken a raw food chef's certification in Bali. And I love thinking about food and our food system and how what we put into our bodies becomes what our bodies are. Today I get to interview somebody who knows a tremendous amount about nutrition and health and wellness, especially for pregnant and postpartum women. But even if you're not pregnant or expecting, there's a lot of value and wisdom in what she has to say. So I'd love for you to listen in. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. She's a certified diabetes educator and she's a researcher and an author with a passion for evidence based Prenatal nutrition and exercise. She has a best selling book. It's called Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. She presented a revolutionary, nutrient dense, lower carb diet for managing gestational diabetes, which is something that affects a lot of pregnant women. This approach has helped tens of thousands of women help manage their GD and It has influenced nutritional policies internationally. There are a lot of doctors and companies and clients now that are taking this book and using it as a resource. It became a runaway bestseller and really surprised her. She's just released her second book, and she took the writing of this book on while she was a first time mom. When her kiddo was little, she spent hours pouring over 930 different studies and references to understand. Why the guidelines for our current nutritional recommendations are so outdated, and what the science really shows us about getting proper nutrition while we're making babies. One of the things that really surprised me was how much we focus on the pregnant woman's body, but then we forget to think about how much recovery needs and our postpartum bodies and what food does for our postpartum bodies. We also get into How She runs her business and one of her quotes she says I didn't become an entrepreneur to work 40 hours a week She has designed her life so that she can spend a lot of time with her little one and works about 15 to 20 hours a week on her business and her book Take a listen and I can't wait for this episode I am so excited to have lily nichols joining us lily welcome to the show Thanks for having me, Sarah. I told you before we started, I have a thousand questions for you, so we're going to do our best to cover it all. But the first question I love asking people when I start the show is tell me about your morning. What time did you wake up today? Not like this mythical ideal of a perfect morning, but like what was today like? Oh, this morning.
1: Well, my son decided to get up on the early side. I have a less than two-year-old toddler. So he was up around six <laughs> which is which is early for us. Actually, he usually wakes up a little later. So got up early, made my cup of tea, made our, our eggs and our breakfast situation, and uh yeah, ran errands and got home as quick as possible to get my sitter all set up and get on the podcast. So my morning went like really
0: fast. <laughs> How old is your son? You said under two, it seemed like one and a half. At the time of recording, he is 23 months. Oh, yeah. So almost almost. Two. two. Yeah. And does he normally go to a daycare? You have a babysitter? What does that look like for you?
1: I have like a ramshackle situation. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, it's the best we can do. We don't live in an area with good daycares. So I have a sitter that comes to the house two partial days a week. And she's been with us since he was... Five and a half months is when I first had her start coming for shorter increments at the time because he was exclusively nursing still at that point and like would not take a bottle. Now we can do longer stretches. And then I have two days a week where he goes to a friend of mine's house who also has a young kiddo and she watches the kids. So
0: you've patched it together. Patched it
1: together. And it's only like currently I'm at 12 hours a week and it's, yeah, it's like barely enough.
0: Hmm. What
1: would your ideal be? I used DLD? to be able to get a lot more done when he was napping more consistently. But like my kid is the kind that's dropped naps like at a very early stage. So he sometimes na- naps, sometimes doesn't. So I don't exactly always get that extra like some people get like these three hour stretches where they can do work and I don't get that. If there's no childcare, no work gets done.
0: A <laughs> 100%, A 100%. So what would your ideal look like? Like, do you have a vision for where you want to go with how many hours you have a week of work versus family?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Cause I feel like it's a moving target. Like early on, I felt that almost like work was forced, like very, very, very early on in like the right around, you know, six months ish timeframe that was like, I still wasn't in work mode. And then like, as he's gotten older and more independent, like my drive to work has like returned in full force. And I'm not sure what that would look like. I think probably like 15 to 20 hours a week, if I'm honest, probably 20 hours a week would be great. I don't like being in work time. Like I didn't become an entrepreneur to work 40 hours a week. I remember I had somebody ask me like, wow, how do you get in your 40 hours? And I was like, wrong question. (laughs) (laughs) How do you not get in 40 hours, like how can you be more efficient with your time and get everything done in less time so I can spend the rest of my time like cooking and gardening and farmers marketing and all the other stuff I like to do. But in real terms, I would probably need 20 hours a week to feel comfortable and feel like ahead of priorities rather than kind of playing catch up,
0: which is where I feel like I'm at right now. Mm. I think that's such an interesting question. And thank you for saying that. Like, we don't have to fill our time with 40 hours a week, just because if we're entrepreneurs. And also, for women listening, I always try to make this an emphasis of some of the questions I ask. Not everyone has the same number of hours in any given week. So we sometimes play that comparison game, where you know, oh, gosh, look at what so and so is doing. And they have 45 hours a week of daycare, but you have 12 and someone else is 18. And and there's so many different situations. Right, right. Well, and there's
1: so many strange like expectations too around like mothering and childcare and like where you should be putting your focus and should be spending your time. And you know, I have with all the different people in my life, it's I have a very split opinions on it. And so I find it hard for me to find my like middle ground. You know, I have some people who are like, no, you should be home with your kid, like, all the time. And early on, that actually felt good. And as he's gotten older, that doesn't feel as good. And I want to be working more. But I also don't want to, like, do 100% like full time daycare. Maybe if that was an option, that was the only option, I'd probably be in that situation. But the daycares around me are
0: really bad. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hence the piecemeal situation we have right now. Hmm. Something I love about what you're saying is also that it can change for you over time. Like what's right for you when your kid is six months old might be different than 12 months and 24 months. And that's also really important to keep in mind.
1: Right. And it's different for everyone. You know, by all means, like I don't mean to be saying like (laughs) everybody has to do it a certain way. Not at all. You kind of have to figure out your what feels good at the time for you and your kiddo or kiddos individually, too.
0: Couldn't agree more. Let's talk about your business because you are a dietitian and a nutritionist, and you have this passion for evidence based prenatal nutrition, which is such an important topic for the show that we're on right now because so many people are parents or becoming parents or experiencing pregnancy. And I know you're on the heels of publishing a second book in this. 12 hours a week situation, which I now I want to ask you so many more questions. But Let's go back in time. Like, how did you get started on this career path? Why did you become a nutritionist? When did that start?
1: You know, I'm one of those weird exceptions to the rule where I like decided what I wanted to do at a really young age, and that didn't change. So I think probably, probably about 15 or something, I got really interested in, food and how our food was grown and the the nutrient density of different foods and just did a ton of reading back then. I mean, I did a project on genetically modified foods when I was in high school for like an environmental science class. So I was like into it from the beginning. And then I just stayed in it. The career, it kind of grew on me because I didn't realize what I was getting into when I went to school. I didn't realize that becoming a dietitian meant taking more science classes than pre-med students. I didn't realize that I had to take like a year of organic chemistry and like all this stuff that was really hard. And I actually came from more of an art background. So it was like hard for me to switch on that science part of my brain, but I actually really liked it. I decided early and then it grew on me. And then in terms of, you know, switching gears into prenatal nutrition, it was actually almost by accident. I had done all my training as a dietitian all my clinical hospital work. And uh, I didn't want to be working in a hospital, as you say, like I'm all for evidence-based stuff, and I just didn't feel it felt unethical. That sounds like a strong way to say it, but it felt unethical for me to be teaching things that the science no longer supports, like you know, low-fat dietary guidelines and whatnot. So I didn't want to be working in one of those positions. I landed a part-time job for the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program and consulted for them for a while. That was where I got, you know, my big head start in gestational diabetes and started to really see from the data like how much a child's health could be impacted by what's going on, you know, metabolically and nutritionally for a mother. So, like a stat that I like to throw out is that children born to moms with poorly controlled gestational diabetes have a sixfold higher risk of being diagnosed with diabetes or Becoming obese by the age of 13 compared to moms who don't have that. That's like really high. So, when I was seeing all these childhood health disparities, I mean, the rates of like obesity and diabetes and all of these, what should be like adult diseases that like hit you in midlife, like hitting kids at like 10, 12, 14, it was just like, what is going on? And to see that there is this really strong connection to prenatal nutrition, a really like litifier. And so, yeah, that's kind of where it started.
0: Mm. So you started there, you were consulting, and I know that you've written this book called Real Food for Gestational Diabetes that was a bestseller. It was huge. Where in your career did that arrive? Was it after years of research? Was it in the middle? Tell me about how that relates to this building of your own business.
1: Yeah, that was after the fact. That was after working for, you know, at the public policy level with the state of California. That was after working. I worked under a perinatologist, so a OBGYN, who actually specialized in gestational diabetes. And it was in those roles that I was seeing, you know, how conventional prenatal dietary policy doesn't necessarily reflect the scientific evidence. And also seeing how when my clients actually followed this advice, a lot of them would, quote, fail diet therapy and require, you know, additional intervention, usually blood sugar lowering medication. And I just, felt like we could do more we could up the nutrient density of the diet which naturally improves blood sugar regulation we could play around with the carbohydrate levels maybe and so sort of in those roles that I got heavy in the research and was able to start implementing some of the things that I was finding and see really amazing outcomes and then within a few years of leaving that position that's when I decided to write this book meaning the first book (laughs) not the new one that's coming out right now the book on gestational diabetes I had been following you know friends, family members, other people getting diagnosed with gestational diabetes and hearing the kind of advice they were given food-wise, which just does not help your blood sugar and makes it worse. And I was just like gouging my eyes out (laughs) like, no, we can do so much more. I need to like put it all together, put all the research behind it and get it out there. It was you know, a big surprise to me that it took off the way it did. It became and remains very popular. You search Amazon for gestational diabetes. It's the first thing that pops up, it has shifted nutrition policy in other countries, the Czech Republic changed their gestational diabetes guidelines based on the info in my book. There's a lot of OBGYNs, midwives, doulas, other dietitians who use it as their like nutrition bible for like teaching from for gestational diabetes, which has just been huge and awesome to see that benefit we can keep going i can i can share how that sort of related to the new book but i don't want to take over
0: <laughs> well i want to get into the book because and when i say the book i mean the the second book real food mm-hmm. for pregnancy but i also want to hear as we're going along i want to hear like how it relates to Both your business and your family, because I think what's so interesting to talk about is the context. Like so many people have different stories about well, I wrote the book first and then my business took off, or I had seven years of clients and then I wrote the book and Oh, gotcha. Right? Like that's yeah, go ahead.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I already had a private practice going almost from like right at the get go when I got out of my training and my internship. I was always doing that on the side as well as doing other things. I was one of those like managing like you know, three part time gigs almost at all times, until I was sort of forced to leave those situations we moved. And so I like some of my contacts were gone. And I wasn't, I also used to teach Pilates. So it wasn't teaching Pilates anymore. And I wasn't the gates opened up. And I had to focus 100% on my business. And so like, I have a virtual nutrition practice virtual, meaning like, I don't meet people in person in office, we meet over phone or Skype, And so I'd been building that for several years and writing the book was something that I did on the side while maintaining like a full-time private practice and And then how it relates to the family side of things. You know, I wrote the book, released the book and we got pregnant like within, I don't know, six months or so of writing the book. And so that really forced me to slow down like in a lot of ways (laughs) What was funny about it is like I'd been wanting to write a book on general prenatal nutrition, but I knew the gestational diabetes thing like needed to be written more. And I figured, you know, there's probably already good books on on regular prenatal nutrition on the market. And then, you know, within a month of publishing that I started getting asked from people, hey, I love your book. The information is so good. It's so much different than the crappy guidelines. Do you have a recommendation on a other like a general prenatal nutrition book for my clients who don't have blood sugar issues. And I started looking and looking and looking and there was like nothing that was very good, like nothing. It either rehashed the guidelines or suggested really oddball things that didn't back it with research. And I'm I'm all for unconventional stuff. But if you're going unconventional, you have to back it up. Otherwise, you're just it's unreliable. How do you know if that's the right thing to do or not? So that really got me wanting to write a book. And I was wanting to write this book like the entire time I was pregnant. And like, I had actually like outlined it very, very early on and like didn't get a chance to actually start writing until my son was 10 months old. when I had like
0: the mental bandwidth for it. So when you were building your practice pre baby and pre family, were you working closer to the 40 hours a week? What was client practice in life like for you? Then?
1: Oh gosh, it's hard to think back to it. Probably all said and told, closer to maybe 30 hours a week. Now as a mom, without having that, like, oh well, I can just check in on this really quickly. Oh, I can just do this really (laughs) fast. Like you don't realize how much time you actually spend on your business until you track it. And so I probably was doing 40 hours, but it wasn't all hands on client time because. What a lot of people don't want to tell you is that there's way more that goes into a business than just whatever your expertise is. As a nutritionist, it's not like that 40 hours is all spent seeing clients. There's for me, like building an online presence. I was like really diligent about blogging every single week for several years, building up your email list, working on like web design projects, working on social media stuff, working on client emails and all that just all the stuff, all the stuff that goes along with it. So yeah, it probably was around 40 hours back then. Hmm.
0: That's really helpful for context, because I like to see how it changes for people over time and what it took to grow the business and where they are now. So let's get into the actual book and talk about food because I just finished reading this book called It's Real Food for Pregnancy. And I'm blown away. I'm so glad that somebody has taken it all and like consolidated it into a helpful guide. And I also would want to point out, I think there's like 346 different citations and references to studies throughout the book. Like there are so many superscript marks where it's like, here's the study you can find. Here's the study you you, can find. Do you want to know the actual count? It's like embarrassing. 934. Oh my God.
1: That's yeah, wonderful.
0: insane. That makes me so happy as like a giggy scientist. So for people listening, you know that I nerd out about all these things. Bravo. And also, I can imagine that's a bit of a brain twister going through all of those studies. Yeah. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Yes, it was. You have to like find your zone of genius. And I think something that I've become known for is like backing up what I say with the science to support it. So I felt like I had to To an even greater degree than the first book, just like back everything up with science. Cause I wasn't just debunking carbohydrate recommendations and some blood sugar things. I was just debunking like everything. (laughs) So you start going into like everything that encompasses pregnancy, and that there's so many topics. So there was a lot to research and there was a lot to cite.
0: So tell us for people who don't know the philosophy and the angle you're coming from, what is real food? Why did you write the book?
1: I wrote the book because there are a number of issues with conventional dietary guidelines. I guess I should start with the real food thing first. Like, when I'm talking about real food, I'm talking about food that hasn't been processed in a way to make it unwhole. And I say that because there's a lot of things that people think are real food because, like, it only has one ingredient, but it still is like one step separated from what it was. So, for example, Milk from a cow, like it comes with fat for a reason. Yet the dairy aisles of a grocery store are like mostly low fat and a lot of non fat that's shifting a little bit now as people are getting less fat phobic. But like, is this low fat yogurt still a whole food? Well, you took out the fat, so it's not exactly the same as what you started with, same with like boneless, skinless chicken breasts, like, well, chickens have bones, and they have skin. And what did traditional cultures do? Well, they ate the whole animal because they kind of had to as a means for survival. But maybe there's also some sort of wisdom in doing things that way. And maybe there's some nutrients that may be missing when we start processing our foods in that way. I give those examples because it's a bit of a step beyond, I think, the way most people think of real food or whole food. It's kind of an ambiguous term. How real food differs from conventional policy is that the conventional policy is based on U.S. government dietary guidelines. By default, we've kind of gotten ourselves in this tricky situation that Michael Pollan calls nutritionism, where we start separating the parts from the whole and analyzing these certain nutrients separately without considering like, the whole of the diet and the nutrients that we find in synergistic quantities in foods instead we say oh just get your daily value for vitamin c well you can get your daily value from vitamin c in a whole orange maybe that's not the whole daily value i don't have the numbers on my head but or you can get it from like sunny delight like orange flavored beverage that's fortified with vitamin c but like what's missing from that is all of these other antioxidants and bioflavonoids and all these things that are in the orange not to mention the fiber and the fact that you have to chew it, it's different. Our conventional policies tend to focus on specific nutrients without considering the foods in which we would normally find them. There's also a heavier emphasis on fortified foods versus where you actually find those nutrients in food. And so what I like to do is sort of reverse engineer a prenatal diet from the context of getting most of, if not all of your nutrients, from the food itself? And then where do we end up? And we end up in a very different place than conventional policy. We don't end up with a high carb, low fat diet, because by default, when you have a higher carbohydrate intake, you end up with lower micronutrient intake, there's a citation for that. (laughs) (laughs) You also, by default, kind of end up with a diet that doesn't contain as many fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamins A, D, E, and K, because you're restricting those, it doesn't have as much of some of these other really important nutrients for your baby's development and your health in pregnancy, like preventing pregnancy complications like vitamin B12, iron, zinc, choline, because the conventional policy sort of has it out for animal foods, especially animal fats still, and you start limiting your animal foods, and you limit your animal fats, and you start limiting your intake of all of these other (laughs) nutrients as well. It's very different. And for that reason, I include in the beginning of the book, which I actually I'm pretty sure I'm giving away this part of the book, the intro and chapter one on my website, for anyone who's interested, I have a side by side comparison of what real food would look like a sample meal plan a conventional meal plan, and then the nutrient density of the two. So where do the vitamins and minerals pan out and real food comes out on top for almost all of them.
0: So it's so interesting, because it's like we've taken away, it's like, we'll cut off the fat, take off the bones, peel the orange, squeeze it, dilute it, ship it, change it, bop it, whatever to it. And then we package it up and we send it to people and we tell them to eat it. And then we go back and we say, well, what nutrients do you need? It's like, oh, well, you're not getting enough of this nutrient that we took off of it because we cut it the fat and the bones out of it. So here supplement yourself with a vitamin Care or a pill. It. Yeah. Yeah. Where you really won me over in the book, I'll be honest, was with your math. People listening know I'm a complete numbers geek, but with your carbohydrate math because what you did, if I'm summarizing this correctly and maybe you can walk us through it, You said, okay, if this is the recommendation, our government is giving recommendations for the food pyramid. And if you really truly eat nine to 11 servings of pasta a day, which like is kind of bonkers, or carbohydrates, and you try to get the nutrients you want, it just doesn't add up. Like you can't possibly eat the minimum level of calories or the recommended level of calories and get the nutrients and do it in the way that they're telling you. It's just, it's like a, a math puzzle that doesn't add up. Am I capturing that right? Can you share that? in a better way, because I know you are the one that wrote the book. Yes,
1: that's correct. It's very difficult to meet those needs without fortified foods or without supplementing your diet. One of my big pet peeves with the policy, not to mention just the quantity of carbohydrates that are recommended, which is 45 to 65% of your calories as carbs. So it's like half of your diet as carbohydrates, which People are doing that, by the way, since the 80s, people have been doing that women on average eat 45% of their calories from carbohydrates, and less fat, less protein than they used to. And look at where we are metabolically, look at the statistics on, you know, overweight, and diabetes and heart disease, like it's not working, like the epidemiology doesn't add up, the guidelines aren't working from that standpoint. But specifically from the pregnancy standpoint, If you start looking at the foods where you get the nutrients that are required for fetal development, the difficult ones to get, most of them are not found in the foods that are most concentrated in carbohydrates. They tend to be found in the foods that are most concentrated in fat and protein. And it's not that you can't eat any carbohydrates. I am misquoted on this like time and time again, and it drives me bonkers. I'm not anti-carbohydrates. I'm suggesting that we don't need as high of a proportion of our diet to come from carbohydrates. And we should be really picky about the types of carbohydrates, the quality of carbohydrates that we're eating. Cause you find carbohydrates in like all your veggies, like green beans and kale and tomatoes and onions and cauliflower. Like those have carbohydrates. They have them in smaller quantities compared to like the bulk of the rest of the nutrients that are found in the food. When you compare it to, white rice, for example, which is pretty much like pure starch, with no vitamins and minerals to go with it. Does that explain it clear enough? Because I can keep
0: going. (laughs) No, I know we go way deep into the recommendations. But I want to bring it up a little bit, because if pregnant women are listening, and they're now feeling like, okay, well, I understand where she's coming from. And I see how the policy maybe hasn't been working. What are kind of three big takeaways or four or two, right? What are a couple of big takeaways that people could say, oh, here's what it looks like for me to change my diet? Like what kind of diet? I don't know if diet's the right word. You let me know. But what would you recommend food-wise for people if they are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant and really want to get the best quality ingredients for their lives?
1: Yeah. We'll put it into food terms. We have to talk nutrients by default, but it gets abstract. In food terms, probably one of the simplest things that I tell people and things that I've been telling people for years, all friends come back to me and be like, you know, you gave me this advice about breakfast or about protein. And like, I've been using that for 10 years and I like feel so much better. It's, it doesn't have to be really complicated. We go into the complexities because it's interesting, but at the simplest, you know, description, two things that I think are really important for anyone, but especially in pregnancy don't eat naked carbohydrates. And what I mean by naked carbohydrates are carbohydrates that have been processed in some way to remove their fiber. So like white flour instead of whole grain flour is one example, or something that's been processed, like corn that has been processed into corn syrup. So that's like the extreme of the definition. But also don't eat carbohydrates, even if they're a great form, like sweet potatoes or something by themselves, eat them with a balance of fat and protein to go along with it. And what that does, so for example, you'd have some sweet potatoes, but you'd also have some like a chicken drumstick or something. With the skin on, please. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cook those sweet potatoes and some fat and salted them, made them taste good also. Or an apple with some almond butter. Like when you start to pair your food in that way, it completely changes Mm -hmm. your satiety signals, like how soon you get full and how long you stay full, and also your blood sugar response to the food. So if you have just carbohydrates by themselves and it gets like worse as they get more processed, you get a huge spike in your blood sugar followed by a huge drop, and that's when you feel hangry. The love child of hungry and angry where you just want to like drive to the donut shop or have a super sweetened caffeinated beverage because you need that pick-me-up. It's not your fault. It's physiologically your body is telling you, holy crap, your blood sugar is taking, this is dangerous. If we think of it from an ancestral perspective, where they weren't having much isolated sugar by itself, certainly there's exceptions, that was an emergency. Your blood sugar dropping too low is not a good thing, and you need to refuel right away. It kind of gets hijacked with modern processed foods and with the frequency at which you're having just carbohydrates by themselves. So if you feel like you're in this sort of cycle of just like having to eat all day long, or only wanting to eat carbs, or feeling super low energy, like feeling low blood sugar, having headaches, even nausea, that can be a sign that you're not getting a good balance. So that number one. And second to that, following those same principles, eat breakfast, specifically referring to pregnancy, because I know there's all sorts of differences of opinion, people do intermittent fasting and whatever, that's all fine and good. In the context of pregnancy, though, You need consistent fuel and you're more prone to some of these side effects of not eating often enough and sort of feeling low energy more so when you're pregnant because your metabolism is kind of revved up because you're shunting nutrients to your babies which means you need to refuel your tank more frequently yourself if you get a good solid breakfast in that has lots of protein and some fat and is not overdoing the carbs so for like an a and b comparison like a couple eggs and some avocado, maybe some breakfast sausage or some bacon or something compared to oatmeal with skim milk and a banana and raisins in it, your blood sugar response and hormonal response and satiety response the rest of the day will be changed. So in not a good way, if you go with that super high carb, sweet oatmeal breakfast. Mm. And by the way, a lot of people think that's like a very healthy breakfast, That'll have, you know, depending on your serving size, like 200 grams of carbohydrates, which will just send your blood sugar skyrocketing. You'll feel full from the bulk of it for a short period of time. But your body's response to that high blood sugar is going to leave it plummeting, probably depending on the portion size, half an hour to two hours later, and you're going to be starving and craving more foods that will raise your blood sugar back up, which will be carbohydrates. So it's like this vicious Cycle. And that's not even talking about like the nutrient comparison, you know, micronutrients between the two, but just from a blood sugar, energy, satiety, feeling well balanced perspective, it makes very good nutritional common sense to get a good solid breakfast with a good amount of protein and fat. And you can still have some carbohydrates, just don't have them be the central part of the meal. Don't make cereal or oatmeal or toast the center of your breakfast. It can be a side dish, but not the main event.
0: I think that's like life-changing because it's so not the norm. We're sold this idea that breakfast is cereal by big industry, right? Like people who want your money are selling this idea. There's even advertisements for like low-fat yogurt as a breakfast, which just takes all the fat out of it. And I remember in high school when I was doing a lot of competitive sports, I was a soccer player and a swimmer, I would eat those empty breakfasts, like I would eat cereal. And by the time I got to school, I was starving. Yes. And I finally switched to eggs and protein for breakfast. And I realized from then on, now it's been almost 20 years, but from then on, it's like, if I start my morning with protein and fat, I don't have that crazy nine or 10 AM craving. And if, you know, on those days when you're like super tired and you're like, I think I will stop and get a donut. Maybe, you know, it won't, it won't be that bad. And I get it. And then I'm like, Crazy! It's like the whole day is just thrown off. And oh yeah, it's it's good to have those
1: experimental days. I mean, I've had days like that too, where it's like, oh, it can't hurt. I'll just do this today, and then I feel like I feel like I've lost my mind, and I have anxiety, and I'm super hungry for like all the wrong foods, and I'm like, oh my god, I have the worst willpower. And then I'm like, back up, back up. What did you do today differently? Oh right, breakfast. Oops,
0: you know, someone brought croissants. Yeah. So eat more fat, eat more protein. I'm going to emphasize what you said, which is she's not saying no carbs or low carbs. She's just saying not 75% of your diet is carbs, which is like a drastic right. difference. And then food combining, all of this is so... Like I just read the book and it made me feel better just reading it. I wasn't even eating. Actually, I'll take that back. I was eating an orange and I quickly got up and got some cheese to eat with my orange. <laughs> <laughs> when I was it's
1: not going to kill you to like have an orange by itself. No. It's just... If you feel like you're stuck in that sort of battle of like willpower of like oh my god I'm just eating all day and like I'm so hungry all the time, start taking a look at like your macronutrient breakdown of the meal. Like carbohydrates are in kind of everything. I had I had another person review my book and they looked at the carb part. She's like, you need to have a warning here that you know these are all your favorite foods and you eat them all the time. And it's not that you'll never be able to eat them because I'm reading this like crying. <laughs> But yeah, carbohydrates are in everything. So not in everything, but they're in, you know, grains, starchy vegetables, like potatoes, sweet potatoes, like legumes, beans, fruit, and milk and yogurt, specifically from the dairy category. And that's like, for some people, that is like, their diet, when you're having those foods, you just need to have them with something else. So you stay satiated.
0: Mm. So I want to ask you about a couple of things I posted that I was going to interview you in my Startup Pregnant community, and a bunch of people asked really interesting questions. So I want to get specific with you about a couple of questions people raised. The first one is about two known kind of dips in energy. And I experienced this too, so I love this question, but like right around the three or four o'clock time is a time when personally, I go grab carbs, I want something easy. And same with like eight o'clock right before bedtime. And if I'm being totally honest on the air, eight o'clock is I live in an apartment that's above a Dunkin Donuts. It's not a good idea. But like there are some times when I'm like, I really want to go get sugar. Talk to me about what's happening and what you recommend. And especially if you're pregnant and exhausted and tired, like how do you manage that if you're eating like a 50 to 80% pretty good diet, but then there are those moments where you're like, willpower, don't have any more.
1: Right. Well, I kind of hate the word willpower. There's a bunch of different ways to look at cravings. And I actually have a whole section on that. And I think it's chapter seven of the book, just looking at pregnancy cravings and what they might mean, how they can serve us, what we can learn from them. I think your question isn't specific to pregnancy cravings, cravings necessarily, because people have this experience outside of pregnancy. I like to really emphasize the value of mindful eating that I think is kind of forgotten in our diet-obsessed culture, where it's like you have to eat a certain amount of XYZ, fit your calorie goals, or meet your macros, or whatever. That's all fine and good. And the whole general principles I'm talking about, about food combining and balance, like that's also... Good to have in the back of your mind. It does not negate the value in listening to your body and getting curious about why you're getting a particular signal at the time that you are and how that relates to whatever else is going on in your food world, emotional world, stress, sleep, whole life environment. Because everything has some context behind it. I don't have a perfect answer to that other than. A, fix some of the basic things first. So make sure you're kind of setting yourself up for success with the two things that we just talked about with breakfast and not doing naked carbs, at least ideally not like all day long. It's okay if it happens every once in a while and see if that changes anything for you hmm. because it, it very well could. And that could take care of the the slump that you're having.
0: Interesting. Interesting. It
1: could also just be that like, you are hungry. I'd actually just had this with a pregnant client pretty recently. She was describing to me how she's, you know, has no willpower. It was the 3 p.m. times that, 3 to 4 p.m. And like, I have no willpower, but I know it's going to be dinner soon. But then I wait to eat dinner with my husband. And it was like this whole saga over like worrying about eating. And we're like, well, when was your lunch and when's your dinner? Like lunch was, I don't remember exactly, like 1 p.m., And dinner wasn't going to be until 7.30 p.m. I was like, well, you should be hungry and you should eat. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, have you done that before? And how did you feel when you did eat? Actually, it felt really good when I had a piece of Ezekiel bread and peanut butter. Like, great. That like fits with the general principles we talked about, right? Getting your protein and fat along with your carbohydrates and your body told you that you felt good, good. Like, keep doing it, you know? So I think when your body is hungry absolutely always honor those cues. Pregnant or not, the more you honor your hunger cues, the more you honor your fullness cues. And it just gets you in a very healthy body love situation, trusting yourself situation, which always pays off in Mm. more ways than just food and weight and things that you can measure. And you still also have the ability to make like a good, better, best kind of a choice in those situations. Like there are days when a donut is actually the right answer. I'm not perfect. And I don't pretend to be a perfect eater. And so there are times when I eat things that aren't great. So there's no guilt that follows it around for me. Mm -hmm. What I do is I stay really mindful of how did I feel after having that? And did that actually serve me in that moment? Would that serve me again? And would I want to do that? What would I do in the future? And it just keeps it open and curious and lighthearted rather than shaming over what you had. Like maybe one day you want a donut and you decide, you know, last time I had a donut, I like felt really weird. I had that sort of like, you know, trans fatty like slick on the top of my roof of my mouth that kind of bugged me or my stomach hurt. Or maybe there's like a food sensitivity. Like you really shouldn't have wheat, for example, then like maybe there's a better option. Like maybe there's a cookie that fits within your dietary things that is better. Maybe an apple and peanut butter is like the right amount of sweet that'll hit the spot. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's chocolate. It's always an open door. There's always a choice. But I do think still honoring your hunger no matter what, in some way, however you honor that actual like craving craving is up to you. But definitely honoring your hunger and having
0: something. Hmm. That's so interesting. I love all of these different types of recommendations too because maybe it's just that once every three weeks you crave a donut and that's that. Or maybe you're hungry, which like, right? That makes so much sense. Like ask yourself, are you hungry? Okay, so how do you notice nutrition recommendations changing across motherhood? So from pregnant to postpartum? Oh, good question. What's really interesting
1: about this is most people think that you're... Nutrient needs are highest during pregnancy, and once you have the baby, you kind of revert back to non-pregnant status, like in all areas of your life, but nutritionally too. There's this weird expectation that like postpartum is just this super quick return to normal, and it's most definitely not. Your nutrient needs actually go up postpartum compared to what they were during pregnancy. Part of this is to account for healing, and replenishment from the actual like toll of growing a whole new life in your body. It's just kind of miraculous and mind boggling that the female body can do this. But part of that is to replenish those nutrients and also to replenish what you burned off through what is often a marathon birth and labor. Part of that also is for mothers who are breastfeeding to continue to supply your body with enough nutrients that you can then pass those nutrients into your breast milk. And I think this is something that isn't super widely discussed because there's so many barriers to getting encouraging and allowing or supporting mothers to breastfeed that they don't want to have one more additional thing that'll make them be like, well, I don't want to eat perfect. So I'm not going to breastfeed because my milk is bad. And it's not that your milk is bad. It's just that we have some data showing that when you eat a more nutrient-dense diet or take certain supplements to get certain amounts of nutrients, you actually pass higher amounts of those nutrients into your breast milk. Breast milk is always great. It can be like
0: supercharged
1: (laughs) by really good food. So the higher nutrient requirements postpartum are for several reasons.
0: Mm, That makes so much sense. And I think sometimes I have this image of pregnancy as, or maybe the human body in pregnancy is like doing this big huge exertion effort. And you get to the end and you're like, ah, I have a baby. And people forget that there's so much after it that's about recovery and regeneration. Yes. Have you studied the impact of like how long it takes to recover and replenish the nutrients in your body that you lose during pregnancy if you can't keep up enough nutrients and the impact of compounding pregnancies like multiple pregnancies on the health and wellness of the mother?
1: Yes. However, all the data on it since I'm super data driven. All the data on it is sort of indirect. You have to kind of connect the dots on it. So with nutrient repletion, for example, like we don't have studies that look at a woman's nutrient stores pre-pregnancy and look at them postpartum. Those don't exist. It'd be great if they did. By the way, if there's any like researchers uh, maternal <laughs> care researchers listening, because that'd be fantastic to have that information. What we do know is that. A, we can measure nutrient levels in breast milk and we can see how those differ depending on a mother's diet. So that's kind of a proxy of nutrient status. We can look at the actual like physical body. So from like the postpartum exercise recovery pelvic floor perspective, we can see how long it takes for like joints and ligaments. To return back to normal, how long it takes for scars to heal, whether it's like a C section scar or perineal tear. And that part of it, the like physiological, like joints, muscles, ligaments part of it takes about a year minimum, which is crazy. Then the other part of it, as we sort of piece together what's going on here, is looking at closely spaced pregnancies. I actually almost shied away from going into this because I was kind of like, well, what does a dietitian have to say about spacing your pregnancies? It's like, that's not my business. I decided to research it and see if there was anything interesting because I knew there were some traditional cultures that recommended spacing pregnancies two and a half to three years apart-ish between the ages of the kiddos. And I thought that was interesting. Like, why do we see that in different parts of the globe? Is there any data to actually say that that's good or not? And there's actually a lot of research on it, and it's surprisingly rather conclusive that They call it interpregnancy intervals, the really short interpregnancy intervals, meaning the time between your first baby is born and the time that you conceive your second or between your second and third and so on. If that time frame is less than a year or less than 15 months or less than 18 months, researchers have come to different conclusions on what time frame is ideal but especially pregnancies spaced less than a year, there's higher risks of a number of pregnancy complications and some developmental problems with babies as well. And they don't know exactly why this is. There was a big review of 58 studies on the topic. And one of the main factors they suggested was maternal nutrient depletion. Like you have grown a whole new human being and it takes a lot of time to replenish that and get back to normal. There are other things that can play a role too, like the physiological healing, like the cervix healing all the way, incomplete healing of a scar. If you had a C-section, there's mm. a whole bunch of suggested mechanisms that this could be at play.
0: So I'm going to direct people to your website to find out more and to your book to find out more, because this I'm sure could take us down a whole nother hour of conversation, oh, yeah. which would be amazing. And also... People listening, if this is something you want to think more about, go over to Lily's website. I'll link it in the show notes and I'll link her book in the show notes too so that you can learn more. I want to move on to a couple of the other questions people shared with me. So, one of the questions I thought was really interesting says, Are nutrition recommendations focused primarily on the health of the baby or the health of the mom? And how do you balance between the two or distinguish between them? And do you? That's a really good question. What's crazy is, We know less about
1: prenatal nutrition and fetal development than people would like to admit. Hmm. And I say this and I've just written a whole book on it (laughs) because a lot of the studies we have on nutrients are looking at what happens when we don't get enough. And we have to, for simplicity of the study design, isolate a single nutrient or a handful of nutrients and then look at what happens when we don't get enough or look at what happens when we have more on board in addition to just the sort of epidemiological studies as well. The truth is the way that prenatal nutrient requirements were set is like mind bogglingly likely very inaccurate. Most of it was accounting for, they set a value for a non-pregnant non-breastfeeding woman. And then they add an increment value that accounts for fetal growth and A little bit more to account for changes in maternal tissue metabolism. So it's like a mathematical situation, but a lot of studies actually suggest that this isn't necessarily correct because it doesn't take into account changes in absorption or excretion of nutrients. And also, maybe doesn't even take into account like how do we set those initial values in the first place for the non pregnant woman, right? So a lot of our nutrient values were actually set for data from adult men, and then adjusted for women, usually adjusting it down because women have a smaller body size. So I'll give one example, because we could go into a million. Choline is an excellent example. It's a B vitamin like compound that we didn't even have recommended amounts set until 1998, by the way. So like the last 20 years, it shows how like new all of this stuff really is. Those values for choline were set based on the amount that's needed to prevent fatty liver disease in men, and was not necessarily set for the amount needed for optimal brain development. We now know choline, like folate, helps prevent neural tube defects, and it optimizes brain development. And now we're seeing studies that are testing supplemental choline at values double the current recommended allowance more than double and we see improved outcomes these are like randomized controlled really well-designed studies where they're testing like infant reaction time (laughs) and like the infants from the moms that had double the amount of choline have significantly better reaction time across the board at all time points they tested and there's a bunch of other studies on choline on even pregnancy complications like preventing preeclampsia and all these other things that are really really cool and it's A lot more than the current recommendation. So, I like to use the RDAs as sort of a ballpark figure, but I think it should really incentivize women to really look at food as a very valuable source of nutrition because we can't just get everything in a prenatal vitamin and it may not be in the prenatal vitamin in optimal amounts because the optimal amounts may not have been defined yet. (laughs) So, what did we do? Prior to supplements, people were able to have healthy pregnancies with food alone. We didn't have supplements till the last 100 years. We didn't identify most of the vitamins till the early 1900s, and humankind was able to continue on. We kind of have to shift our focus back to food and prioritizing really good quality, high-nutrient-dense food, in addition to like smart supplementation as well.
0: The ramifications of what you're saying are really jaw-dropping and big. And if I were listening to this for the first time, if I hadn't just read your book, I would be rewinding and replaying that just so that I could understand all of it. Because what you're saying is that, first of all, these recommended guidelines may have been built off of like just the bare minimum. It's not like, hey, you take your prenatal and you're good. It's from the evidence we know that if people get less than 200, they have really damaging side effects. So we'll make sure people just get 200. Yes. And it's like like my mind is my brain is firing really fast right now because it's just it's like, wait, what? But then the other thing that's really interesting about what you're saying and that I want to connect the dots on for people listening is that there are specific foods, and Lily talks about them in her book, that are super valuable nutrient, like powerhouses, like eggs. And there's cultural histories of people who said, Oh yeah, pregnant women should eat six eggs a day. Like that's a thing. I'm gonna direct people to go read this in Lily's book because it turns out that it's like better than a prenatal vitamin because it has all of them in the most bioavailable forms. And for me personally, I remember that I craved like crazy during my pregnancy. Lily, you might laugh and you might totally understand this. I drank a gallon of orange juice a day. Wow. Wow. And I don't know why. I, I, like, I have heard this. I, <laughs> you're not the first woman because I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of pregnant women, and you're not the first one to share this. And I didn't understand it because I do have like some blood sugar problems. So I get kind of crazy. But as long as I had it with meat and eggs in the morning and I sipped it with lunch. I live in Manhattan and I would like go to a bodega and find like a $27 orange juice and that's all they'd find. And I'd be like, I don't care what I have to do to get the orange juice. Like I just need the orange juice. Then I finally read the label of the ingredients and it was like, oh, it's got like 5,000% potassium, magnesium, folate, folic acid, vitamin B, vitamin C. And I was like, is this just a prenatal vitamin? Like, am I just craving nutrients? It was really astonishing to me.
1: Probably. I I bet you a big part of it was the electrolyte thing. Mm. People really don't appreciate the, and I actually didn't even appreciate the huge shift in electrolyte needs during pregnancy until I really started digging into the research. Like there's so many things. If we have another one, I'm like, there's so many things that I'll like have on my radar that I just didn't in my first pregnancy. You know, you have 40% increase in fluid volume. Like in blood volume, and you have the amniotic fluid, you have all these fluids on board. Say you get dehydrated and you go to a hospital, do they give you an IV of plain water? Mm -hmm. No. They always give you an IV with, at the very least, salt water. You need electrolytes to go along with those extra fluids. So I think a lot of these pregnancy cravings are not all of them but many of them can be driven by an increase in nutrient needs certainly the increase in salt requirements which is another thing that needs to change in our current policy you know it kind of helps explain all the cravings for pickles and olives and salt and vinegar
0: potato chips and you know yeah 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 okay the last question i have for my list from these women who that want to know how do people who are exercising a lot or running five days a week, you know, I, as a former college swimmer, I have a lot of friends in my Facebook network that are pretty high level athletes. What do you know or recommend for them about their diets and their prenatal nutrition?
1: Well, for one, they're probably going to need more of everything. Because not only do you have the energetic cost of growing a baby, which actually isn't, that much higher than non-pregnant needs, the estimation is about 300 extra calories a day. So like an extra good size snack a day should cover you. But if you're also expending another, I don't know, I'm I'm guesstimating three to 500 calories for doing this athletic feat, then you're going to need that much more additional energy to cover it. That should come from a balance of all your macros. It's not that you necessarily need More of one thing, certainly protein, of course, because you have some, you know, muscle breakdown and tissue turnover for that side of things. I would say one thing specifically there is your connective tissue is under a lot of strain during pregnancy because a lot of things have to shift and move and expand to accommodate the baby and also prepare for birth. There's even a hormone called relaxin that is released that like helps relax for lack of a more accurate definition, your um ligaments and help you to vaginally birth a baby. I mean it's really cool. But some people get kind of loosey goosey in their joints. But also your your need for the nutrients that support this change in connective tissue and support your expanding belly skin and growing uterus and growing breasts, those nutrient needs go up. And there's one in particular an amino acid called glycine, which is found in large amounts in the bone skin and connective tissue of animal foods. So like slow cooked meat, bone broth, they do have collagen and gelatin like powders that you can add to foods, chicken skin, pork skin. It's all in like the fatty skin and like yummy, you know, you make a pot roast that like cooks down and gets like all just fall apart off the bone. It's in there. <laughs> and the broth that goes with it, you're going to need even more of that than the average pregnant woman because your connective tissue is taking more more of a, a hit by doing more activity, nutritionally, take that into account. And then just on the physical side of things, just be super mindful of how your body feels. Because, you know, pregnancy is not a time to like, prove yourself in any athletic capacity. It's definitely beneficial to keep exercising. I have a chapter on exercise in the book, it is excellent. However, continuing to do higher impact activities, if you're having any signs of like pelvic floor discomfort incontinence meaning you're you're accidentally peeing yourself that's a sign to kind of ease up on the like jarring sort of intense like feet hits the pavement hard kind of activities and just preserve your pelvic floor health because pelvic floor issues that develop during pregnancy tend to follow you around for a while and it's really good to just like be super super protective of your pelvic floor as much as you can now
0: and then even postpartum Hmm. So you've given us this amazing tour of your book and so many of the pieces of wisdom and the pieces inside of the book. I want to now pull back a little bit and ask you about the process of writing the book. Because you mentioned at the beginning of the episode that you started writing it when your little one was 10 months old and he's now 23 months old. And you somehow did it in shorter weeks. How did that go?
1: I pulled back in virtually every area of my business to put 85% of my energy into this project. I was only able to do it because I already have a process from having written the first book. I stayed motivated because I have some guarantee of people are going to want to read this because people were literally asking me for this exact book. So I knew my efforts would be worth it. My process was getting a super, super clear outline of where I wanted to go and where to go into such topics in the book. Because as you've seen, it's like, you know, almost 350 pages and 934 references. it's just like this crazy monstrosity. And there's so many interconnected things in nutrition that you don't want to get too repetitive. I just had a really, really clear outline and stuck to it. And if things changed, I would change it in the outline and I could always go back. For me, it was just staying really focused on this being my primary project for the year, which turned into a year plus some. Every nap time, every babysitting session, every husband's going to go out on a hike with the kiddo, I was not lounging on the couch watching Netflix. I was writing and researching and editing. I just have this huge motivation to get it done. So it just got done. I don't know how it got done. I like look at it. I just got my like first proof copy last week. And I was like, Oh my god, like, how did this happen? I don't, I don't even know because it's, it was over such a long period of time. I wrote my first book from first word on the page to publishing date in six months. And this took more than double that. And so it's hard to keep track of what you've done and when and how things fit together. So there was a lot more revisiting of old sections that were previously written Mm. to make sure that I wasn't being too repetitive or know where I was going to expand and cross referencing in the book for my
0: own brain, but also for the reader. Mm. I mean, it sounds like one intense project to take on with a little one. How are you feeling about your business and the book? Because it's about to come out. Like, What's your emotional state or many states like?
1: My emotional state is mostly positive. I'm feeling really good about it. We went to pre-sale, I guess, last week I announced it and it's like shot to the top of the charts on Amazon for new releases in the pregnancy and childbirth category. So that is definitely reassuring that like, oh, people actually want this and are like buying this before it's available. Hooray. Like my effort has been worth it. It's combined with like that. And then I waver between like, oh crap, am I going to find something else to fix? Because when you get to a project that's so long, there are inevitable errors, typos, like up the wazoo. And I had three like solid reviewers, including a copy editor when I was on my second draft. And then I did another draft or maybe two drafts and then meaning full read through and fixing things. And then I like opened up reviewers to people on my email list. And I, you know, had an application process and I chose a bunch of people between that and advanced reviewers. I had 30 people plus Mm. some go through the book and give me their feedback. And there were so many little, little things to change. Some of them are just differences of opinion. Some of them are actual typos. Some of them are, this could be explained better. Some of them led to a whole expanded section on a topic that I wasn't planning to go into. But it was like, there's been so many cooks in the kitchen on this project and so much time on the editing side of things, on the refining side of things, that I feel like it can't possibly be done. There must be something else to do. But I just got the final formatting files yesterday and sent them off yesterday for my second proof printing copy. And I think it's actually done. So I'm like hesitant to fully celebrate because I'm like, I don't know if it's actually done. And I kind of don't even want to open the cover on the next proof copy because I don't want (laughs) to find something else to change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, congratulations. That's really exciting. Like giving birth to a book is so exciting. Where can people find you on the interwebs and where do you hang out on social media?
1: Yeah, you can find the book at realfoodforpregnancy.com. Pretty simple, just the title of the book. That's where I'm giving away the first chapter for free if you want to check it out and see if you like the direction I'm going with things. My main website is pilatesnutritionist.com and that's where my blog is and a whole bunch of other stuff social media I am on Facebook Pilates nutritionist on Twitter Lily Nichols RDN and I just started Instagram like not very long ago so I'm like a terrible Instagrammer but I'm (laughs) I'm on there and I try to share useful things and I think that platform sort of lends itself to be a little more personable so I'm enjoying it but I'm kind of new to Instagram I'm on there at Lily Nichols RDN also
0: thanks thank you Sarah A few more things before we end this episode. First, if you know of a woman or a friend that would benefit from this show, send them a link to our website at startuppregnant.com. So many of you have already reached out and shared your stories, what this podcast is doing for you. And for that, I am so grateful. So if you know of somebody that would love to listen in, or you think that these stories would really hit it home for somebody, feel free to send it along. Second, If you've got a story that you need to share or tell, head over to startuppregnant.com and send us a note. We have had so much reader mail already, and your stories mean the world to us. We are proudly listener-sponsored, so if you want to sponsor the show and hear more episodes, head over to our Patreon page, and you can buy us a cup of coffee, or two, or three. We'll take many cups of coffee. If you want any of the show notes or links from this particular episode, all of the references and tools and tips that we talk about are always posted on StartupPregnant.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on the next episode.